Welcome and thank you for joining us in season three of the Religion Podcast, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. Joel, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How about it? Well, I apologize in advance to everyone. One of us will sound good today. The other one of us is a rabbi. (laughs) (laughs) I have this cold I cannot shake, but it will be fine. You're not about to give me COVID, are you, through the microphones? I tested myself yesterday. I was negative. I probably will test myself again today, but COVID or not, it don't feel good. Well, I am achy and sore as well, but that's not from anything sick. It's just from knocking a wall out in my house. (laughs) Well, at least you have some sort of physical uh, reason for it. Well, we will take care of you, Rabbi. We will make sure that, you know, all of your sentences, once edited, sound perfect. (laughs) Beautiful. Thank you. I I will even use the anti-nasal graphic equalizer to make your voice sound normal. That, that by the way, I, that probably is a thing. And can you come? Can you do that at my uh, annual general meeting tonight as well, or, or big once a year meeting? Aha! Uh-huh. So they get to vote whether or not you are acceptable to keep as their rabbi going forward. That's a biggie. That, yeah, that that is a way to phrase it. But yes, <laughs> that is correct. Well, that's the way the insecure leader in in all clergy hears it. Right? Will they keep me? Will they keep me? Um, but but it, oof, that spider! I found a big spider that was bothering me. Um, but yes, that is tonight. I'm going to be drinking lots of tea between now and then. But let's get real, man. Let's do it. <laughs> All righty. So last Friday. I guess, you know, just a few days ago, we had a celebration of our adult B'nai Mitzvah. And so some of you may know that at the age of 13, uh, congregation, Jewish congregations around the world celebrate this coming of age ritual of, of young teenagers by having for a boy a bar mitzvah and a girl a bat mitzvah, meaning son or daughter of the commandment. Apologies for the gender binary. Um and it it is a real um, simcha, a real joyous event in the in the certainly in the life of the family, and also hopefully in the life of the congregation. The child um, usually prepares from about nine months to a year, specifically on this day. Um, they lead. Uh, our custom is that they lead the Friday night and Saturday night service. Almost all of it. I mean, I'm certainly there and I'll announce page numbers. Friday night, I give a sermon. But other than that, most of the prayers are done by the by the student, both in Hebrew and English. And then Saturday, the culmination of a bar mitzvah is being called up to the Torah and then chanting from the Torah. And as I said, you know, a kid spends a considerable amount of time doing that. Well, for lots of reasons, there are many adults that never had a bar mitzvah. For one... Women, like our parents' age, Joel, um, often weren't able to go to Hebrew school when their brothers did, right? Like they just – it just wasn't done as a custom. So a lot of women have had a bat mitzvah later in life. My mom is one of them. She had hers about 20 years ago. And then also people who convert to Judaism. 
you know, you once someone converts and then continues to take Judaism and Jewish life seriously, they can then pursue a, an adult bar mitzvah. And as an adult, it's usually in a group setting. And it's kind of like an adult ed situation, but uh, a little more intense might not be the right word, but there's a, you know, I try to have a set curriculum so that people are getting a little bit of Israel, a little bit of history, a little bit of theology, certainly talking about uh, anti-Semitism in this world and what does it mean to to authentically declare oneself uh, committed to Judaism, knowing that that's unfortunately part of our reality and weaving all of that together in in a class that develops bonds with one another and supports one another and then ultimately celebrates with one another and it just so happened that this service also had our first what we call our own egg and you've been you've been to our services Joel where you know the own egg is where we have desserts and drinks and people hang out after the service and this was our first one in over 10 years. And we had over 100 people in the sanctuary and then the social hall to celebrate these six people. And it was just awesome. And the reason I bring it up, aside from it being a, a very recent and happy memory, is it reminding me of that, that it's never too late to learn. You know, some of the people in the B'nai Mitzvah class were born Jewish and just for whatever reason didn't explore it earlier in life. And, you know, as I tell them, there is no such thing as too late. You you could get started, you know, whatever you whatever you have in terms of your passion and desire is what we can quote unquote, you know, fill you up with, right? And just kind of respecting the authenticity of the, and the integrity of these people and seeing how it inspired the congregation is just awesome. Nice. So six and they weren't just young ones, they were older ones as well. They were all I have to think about this. I, there was one uh, woman who's probably my age, so I, I don't know that I'd call that young, but everyone else was 50, 60, 70. Amazing. I guess 50 is kind of my age. That's only two years older than me. But yeah, like 60, 70. Did everybody get a – there's all these weird uh, stereotypes of bar and bat mitzvahs. If you, do you watch The Big Bang Theory? Do you know Howard on The Big no, Bang Theory? No, much to my parents' chagrin. They think I'd love it. <laughs> you would. But Howard is always talking about cashing in his bar mitzvah bonds for trips to whatever, you know, Dragon Con or whatever. Were there, were there big gifts uh, re- awarded from family and from congregation to these new folks? Um, no, not, not like that. Although I did make a joke of, you know, finally you all today are adults because the, you know, what we say to kids is, you know, you become a man, you become a woman in the eyes of the tradition. Um, so not gifts in that sense, but yeah, it is a tradition or at least was when I was a kid to give Israel bonds, fountain pens was the generation before me. And, um, there's this joke today, I am a fountain pen because you'd get so many fountain pens as a 13-year-old kid. Um, but yeah, it was really nice, and I, I think just really lifted up the spirits of the congregation. Did you have any of those celebrations during COVID, and you just had to do them virtually? Exactly, and and all kids. So, you know, adult B'nai Mitzvah, I do every three to four years, because you want to you, you grow a, a you don't want just one or two people because you really want people to develop bonds with one another and really have kind of a, a cohort, a community. Um, but yeah, I mean, we have probably six to nine-ish 
uh, kids that have their own individual bar bat mitzvah every year. And uh, we've done, over the last two years, we did a variety of things where um, we've done some completely virtually. Many, they were in the synagogue with me, but no one else was. Uh, so, the, but all of those factors, you know, made it feel not, or the, in the words that I'm using tonight in the meeting, you know, less than, you know, it, it wasn't quote unquote, the normal experience, mm-hmm. but it was still a bar bat mitzvah, and, you know, still doing a wonderful job and all of that. Is there conversation in, in y'all's, uh, in reform Judaism of changing the word bar or bot to something that's just child without the so, gender... Yeah. So I, I, yeah. So when there is a non-binary student, there are different Hebrew words and and names that that we use. Um, but for when someone does identify as a male or a female, I do use the the traditional barabad as that's how they refer to themselves. Yeah. But the answer is the answer is yes. In Reform Judaism, yes. I can't speak to others, although I know the answer. So your freshly born son had a special ceremony, the naming ceremony, at eight days. And then when he's 13-ish, we'll have a bar mitzvah. And those are the two kind of rites of, key rites of passage. Are there others, other key rites of passage? So uh, there is, this isn't... um, what we call halakha, it's not like written as Jewish law anywhere, but we've de- Judaism has developed a custom of consecration, which is, I think, a word you know, um, where, where when we have kids that enroll in the religious school for the first time, um, we celebrate that with a service and uh, apples dipped in honey to celebrate the sweetness of learning and that sort of thing. Um, but the bar mitzvah is definitely the quote unquote biggie. Um, for a young child. And then after that is wedding, you know, in terms of the next quote unquote life cycle event. Yeah. And in the Christian tradition, it's amazing. There really are direct parallels to this. Um, In a lot of Christian traditions, infants are baptized when they're very young. If not, if you're in one of those traditions where baptism is considered a believer's baptism. It only applies if you're accepting the faith yourself. But in my tradition and in many other Christian traditions, the baptism is a sign that God loved you even before you could love God back. Um, and you are baptized as an infant. Um, and then later in in the development stages, there is what's called confirmation for us, where a student does spend six, nine, 12 months, sometimes three years, um, learning the traditions and the history and the scriptures and the theology, and then confirming their own faith. And that is the point where they are an adult or an active member of the church. They can vote. They can serve on offices. They are treated just like all the other adults in the church. So baptism and confirmation are kind of our bookends to the uh, the naming celebration and the bar bat mitzvah. And we do have something called confirmation that we stole from you all. Uh, we're in so bar and bat mitzvah is usually in seventh grade. That's when most kids are thirteen, and then um, we most congregations have some sort of post b'nai mitzvah program where kids are still coming on Sundays for a formal religious school. And confirmation is at the end of tenth grade, and it's a very similar idea that they are confirming their Jewish identity as an older thinking 
young adults. I love um, that, the 13th through 11th grade, because I, I find middle school is a point where things are flipping, and it, it's a beautiful start to a journey, like a commitment to a journey, but the development and the ability to process the nuances and the information, it really changes from 5th, 6th grade, 7th grade to 10th, 11th, 12th grade, and I wish that for, window was the, the, the primary focus. For sure. Yeah, it's it's uh, hard yeah, to take absolutely. a sixth grader through confirmation, a twelve year old. It, um, it, it's just really hard. But it's you know, it it's almost feels a little late to take a sixteen year old or seventeen year old through it. So maybe if we started looking at confirmation as the beginning of the process, um, and then tenth, eleventh grade as the completion of it, that might be another way to do it. Oh, that's interesting. I like that, Joel. I like that. So that's my uh, light and happy topic to contrast with your um, very, very serious, but also I think important topic. So uh, please take it away. Sure. Um, well, this one hits at home. There are in Jerusalem, in the West Bank, um, there was a, I think she's an American citizen journalist for Al Jazeera. Um she went out with her press crew. Um, she put on her helmet and her body armor um, that is colored and labeled press. Um, and in some kind of uh, not a I, I can't use the word scuffle. I mean, it was a a battle between uh, Israeli security forces and Palestinians. She was shot. Um, she died. Uh the debate lately has been whether or not who killed her. Was she just accidentally killed in the crossfire? Um, the Palestinians have the bullet from her autopsy, and they are refusing to release it to Israeli authorities. Therefore, Israeli authorities are saying, well, we, we didn't do it. It was probably y'all. And Palestinians go, we know it was y'all, but they can't prove it. And there's not a video evidence, but they're Lots of circumstantial evidence to suggest that she wasn't randomly killed um, and that the bullet did come from the Israeli side of the fight. Well, at her funeral, um, the Israeli authorities, security authorities and the family had agreed that her body would be carried by a hearse to the gravesite, but the Palestinian citizens picked her casket up and were going to march it by hand. Um, and when they exited the place where her body had been laying, carrying her, they were also waving Palestinian flags, which the Israeli state hates. They were chanting uh, Palestinian uh, cheers and, and national rights and for freedom, which the Israeli security forces rarely tolerate with much sensitivity. And a few water bottles were thrown. And the Israeli forces attacked with batons and mace. They kicked and beat the those carrying her coffin until they almost dropped it. And to watch, there were obviously hundreds of videos, people with cell phones all around that, taking video of that exchange from multiple angles. It is, as a clergy person... I don't know why, but as a clergy person raised in the South, 
if I see a hearse, a funeral procession coming up the road with lights on, I'm that weirdo who turns on my lights and my flashers and pulls over to the side of the road until the funeral procession passes. And I don't know what religion they are as they pass. I just do that. Um, to watch the Israeli security forces, who most likely, who most likely did kill her, then come in after and attack her again in death. Um, and those carrying her, I, I had this weird, uh, irrational pastoral anger. Like, can't, can't we at least together mourn death? And we, I, I am just so mad and so broken that her death had to become another act of violence. I, and it's, it's so wrapped up in all the West Bank occupied territory, two state solution, um, Palestinian versus Israeli, Jew versus Christian, um, Hebrew speaking versus Arabic speaking division. But I, gosh, I really thought that a funeral procession could be peaceful and, and it's not a fair fight when you look at it. There are people in tennis shoes and slacks and throwing water bottles and sticks at men and women in full riot gear with assault rifles and shields and helmets. And uh, it's not a fair fight, but to watch it just made me so angry. And and I don't know. like I needed to process that with my rabbi friend so that you and I could both speak into that space somehow. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't, my first comments are going to maybe be a little bit defensive in that my understanding is not exactly how you described it. So for one, um, I think, and, and, and if this comes across as like, I am defending Israel at all costs, I do not mean that because, <laughs> but, you know, those that know me uh, will, will say I, that, that is not the case for me. Um, but it seems to me that if the bullet was from an Israeli gun, that it, that it was not purposeful. Now, that doesn't make it any less horrible or any less a tragedy, but it, I, I, I don't believe it to be a targeted, you know, murder or assassination or something like that. Um, and the funeral procession wasn't peaceful. I mean, they were throwing rocks, they were, and it wasn't like a mob, right? I mean, there was a lot of people. And like, here's where like, I'm torn. Because, you know, when you're pulled over, let's just talk about America for a second. If you're pulled over, and you act suspicious, I mean, in terms of the, uh, the the comparability of force, I mean, you know, there you are, like you might be a young kid or whatever, and here's a police officer with a baton and a gun and a radio and the lights on the car. And so should he not, or, or she, should they not have access to those things in case, you know, things get out of hand? And so I I definitely think that you, it'll... Israel's in a no-win position 
because th- there are times, and this is not a clear cut time. So with that, I'm completely with you. Um, th- there are times when it's 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 kind of like you're. I think of times when you might be following the letter of the law. And you might be doing everything, quote unquote, by the book, and it's by regulation, and you're not violating everything, anything. But anyone who knows what you're doing is like, dude, that's just wrong. And like, the, there have definitely been times when that's the case for the Israelis, without question. Uh, I, I think also sometimes on the other side, it, they will position themselves to look much more innocent and peaceful than than they are and we see this uh you know safe in america and it's really hard to get a clear understanding of what's going on but unfortunately it's very easy to make a judgment um i don't know that that I don't know if that helps you think through it any better. I'm not sure it helps me think through it any better. Here's some things we we know about it. Like, they came out carrying her coffin, waving Palestinian flags. The police demanded they stop doing that. Now, why would the Israeli police demand they stop waving a flag, right? They also chanted and cheered and yelled um, Palestinian nationalist chants. And in that right. in that occupied territory that Israel has annexed and claimed as its own, despite the 60-year history now, um, the police warned them to stop chanting. The first videoed projectiles were three plastic water bottles thrown in the direction of the police. And when that happened, the police surged forward with full force, swinging batons, kicking people. They forced them backward. A guy hits the deck. They kick him. They're, they're beating him on the ground as he just lays on the ground. So... What happened was the words like Palestinian existence, we wave a flag, we say our words, that is such a threat to Israeli um, Israeli power identity that it's, it is worthy of violence. And, and as far as a no-win situation, I think, I think Israel police have a way to win right there, right? And it's to not be violent, right? It's okay, they wave their flags. Okay, they make their chants, right? Whatever. And throwing throwing rocks? No rocks thrown, you buddy. No rocks thrown. A water bottle or two, and I'm in full water gear. I'm in full gear. Nothing, right? There's no rocks thrown. You get water bottles. So, you know what? I lift a shield, I block it. Y'all move on, move on, move on, right? And that's an option. That is a win. And Israel looks to all the world like they are the ones keeping the peace. They are the ones holding the line. They are the ones protecting the situation. And, and even though 
you know, these kids and old men, right, who are grieving and mourning and mad as hell, do a little something. <clears throat> the restraint, the restraint of those with all the power is is that's the responsibility of those who take on the on the uniform. Oh, so there, yeah, there I agree with you. And and I think the problem I make it sound so simple. The one problem that but the the problem that Israel has is kind of obviously, you know, the right to defend itself and and I will I will never back down from saying it it has a right to exist. But how far, you know, in the Torah, and we may have talked about this before, there's a a line, justice, justice, you shall pursue in Deuteronomy. And one of the commentaries on, well, why is the word justice repeated is to remind us that when we seek justice, we have to do so with justice. In other words, we can't commit a wrong just to get to to an end at the other end, at the other kind of end. Basically, it means the ends doesn't justify the means because we have to do everything with justice and not cut corners. And I think sometimes there's this aspect of on on both sides of kind of almost wanting things to get out of hand so that the other side looks bad or so that the world has more compassion or or more anger toward a certain side. And, And I do believe that there have been many times, for example, when the United Nations has called out Israel completely unfairly and w- without any sort of yardstick by which it measures violence and protecting oneself with regard to other countries. And this is the problem I have with this specific instance is like both sides can absolutely point to Oh, this instance here with the Al, uh, Al Jazeera uh, reporter or this instance here on the Temple Mount and be, quote unquote, right and have, you know, righteous indignation and anger and it's all justified. But at, at some point, one of the sides has to decide, we have to decide, okay, we're, we're not going to respond with violence and we need to, we need to figure this out. But it, but that takes both sides doing that. Otherwise you have, you have, more violence. Like if I know you want to kill me, and it's a little bit of a gross analogy, but if I know you want to kill me and I have a gun to protect myself and all of a sudden I lay down my gun and you kill me, well, it's like (laughs) now I'm just not doing my due diligence to protect myself. If we go back in time to the 60s, to the agreement of the, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and the Golan Heights, um, that agreement that Israel has not honored and is erasing inch by inch every day, the erasing of that agreement was the great injustice that is still piling on all these downstream injustices. I doubt that great injustice will ever be unraveled, right? It it looks at this point like the nation state Israel, not not the people Israel, but the nation state that has taken the name Israel is hell bent on absorbing all of those territories as its own and erasing whatever nation state possibility there was 
for there being a Palestine again. They won't be able to erase the Palestinian people, which means that inside the new nation-state Israel, there will have to be a just way for Israelis and Palestinians to occupy one state together because Israel is not going to let there be a two-state solution. I think it's, and they're willing to do anything to prevent that. I think that's really obvious. If that's the path, then the Israelis' citizens inside their Israeli state have to treat Palestinians as co-citizens and let them mourn and grieve and be, be confess their identity and give them time to hate the loss of the state that the world promised them and Israel promised them, that Israel has stole from them house by house. There, I also disagree with you because there have been times, we are not in that time now, and I am no fan of the Israeli leadership now and how kind of hawkish it, it became, you know, I would say, starting with Netanyahu. Um, but there have definitely been efforts for a two-state solution where I would say that the Palestinians didn't have a good faith seat at the table. Now, we can disagree about that. But what I think we do agree on is that this like this kind of thing is a tragedy. And, and that, that's one piece for me that, you know, when you talk about uh, being a clergy person and just as a pastor being sad or angry, it makes me sad that we can't recognize the humanity and tragedy even amongst our, and I'm putting quotes in, enemy. You know, in the, the famous Midrash when the, the Israelites escape from Egypt and the Egyptians drown, thus is allowing the Israelites to live – and the Israelites are celebrating, and God says, and again, this is not in the Torah, it's, in a, it's a midrash, but it's certainly in, it's extant in, in the Jewish corpus of text. God says, how can you be singing when my children are drowning? The children, notably the Egyptians. Mm -hmm. And I wish that we had a similar view of humanity in things like this. Yeah, it... it, it and this is normal. It all comes down to land. Like the, I hear you say the Palestinians never really had good faith. Well, they always insisted on a piece of Jerusalem, and the Israelis never allowed that. Like, no, there's no bit of Jerusalem that will ever be outside Israel. And Palestine always wanted a piece of Jerusalem as its capital. That's why there is a West Bank. Um and that's never going to happen. And nor was it ever going to happen. There's, there's never been an Israeli leader who, who said and did consistently actions that could imagine that solution in a two-state option. Um, Correct. Which, which is why there was never a two-state solution, which is why Netanyahu finally said, forget it. You know what? We're never losing it. We might as well take it. And has taken it inch by inch, house by house, farm by farm. That, you know, if somebody 65 years ago had said no to the treaty, if somebody hadn't gone to war to battle those lines um, that were being imposed in order to resettle things, if they had said, look, we're going to be one nation 
full of multiple people. And we're, some are going to speak Hebrew and some are going to speak Arabic. And we're going to find a way to do this together. And all will have freedom of speech and all will have freedom of religion. And we will never have to fight about that. That could have worked. But there's a sense of purity and a sense of threat by the other. And it's really obvious that that Palestinians are <laughs> have so little. They have enough power to do harm and not nearly enough power to ever to ever get justice for what they feel was unjust. Israel has all the power. And how they wield that power makes all the difference now. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And it is it is a tragedy. And it's a tragedy for, for people that love Israel as Jews and people that love Israel as Christians and as Muslims. Um, and... You know, not not being so tribal, God forbid, that that we only care about one people, the side that we're aligned with. It's like, yeah. uh, I just read a book where it's, it's like, if God hates all the same people that you do, then you're not praying to God, you're praying to yourself. Mm. So, you, you know, we, my, the God that I pray to loves humanity, not yeah. Palestinians, not Israelis. And um, if... I, I think the challenge is for humans to do the same. Well, and there's so that people don't think I'm picking on a foreign nation state. The same sense of responsibility that I put on Israel. Okay, let's say that those police security forces um, panicked or overreacted violently to the the threat of water bottles. Uh, okay. Their authorities, the Israeli authorities over them, instantly disciplined those police, instantly held a press conference saying that is not what they were there to do. That is not the training that we give them. They responded uh, in a in a too violent kind of way for what they were being given. Um, they are heavily armed to protect themselves. They are not heavily armed to do harm to others. They're there to protect and serve, and they desecrated the funeral. And we want to apologize on behalf of the Israeli people to the Palestinian people, our brothers and sisters. And we have disciplined those officers, and they will be going through new training. And once they've proven themselves worthy, they will be uh, returned to duty. That's the, well, the, the problem. The problem with that is uh, it requires vulnerability. And unfortunately, with this us versus them mentality, there's no vulnerability. It's the same thing American officials have to do when our police pull over a black person and she reaches into her purse and they shoot her in her car. Or the, or the guy or a black man in a car says, hey, I'm licensed to carry. There's a gun in my glove compartment. And he gets shot instantly just because he reaches for his wallet. Um, that police officer is not, uh, he's not punished, right? So if the authorities over the American police officer in that situation who has all the power, all the authority, right, and, and needs to have wisdom and restraint instead of fear and anger in his decision-making, that if the American authorities over those kind of police officers were to come out and say he screwed up, he should not have done that, 
He is, he's been reprimanded. He's going through retraining. Uh, we are going to be working with him. And if he has to serve a sentence for a, you know, three years for killing somebody who is innocent and then three years of probation uh, to get back on the force, that's his punishment. And we will serve that. Um, when's the last time you saw an American authority hold its police force accountable for overusing force? It, it just doesn't happen. So I'm not... I'm no more upset with Israel for what they did at that Palestinian funeral than I am for American police forces for what they do well, it's every just, day. And it's the nature. It's the nature of power to a certain degree, and it's a na- it, that it's it's very difficult uh, for people to have that sort of. I, I like the words you used: wisdom and restraint. Here's a, a an odd sidebar on all this: this 18 year old shooter in the Buffalo grocery store. Um. Let's imagine a Muslim shooter attacks a Publix in Georgia full of white people on the good side of town. What are the chances that that Muslim gunman comes out of that store alive? Very low. Let's say a black man armed in a white shopping mall in Dunwoody shoots 13 people. What are the chances that that black shooter comes out of that mall alive? Negligible. Yeah, uh, totally. How does that white shooter in a black grocery store in Buffalo, how do those police have the restraint to not kill him on site. Well, now you're dealing with, I mean, and th- that gets into bias. It gets into all sorts of other things, but it, you're absolutely correct. And that's what I saw in the Israeli police force attacking the Palestinian funeral possession. It, it, was, a, it was a bias against those flags and those chants and anybody that looks like that and talks like that. And it it engendered enough, oh, yeah, we'll show you from those Israeli police. I, I just feel like they need, they need a different way of handling their fellow citizens. I hear that. Can I tell you what I need? What's your, what do you need? Some more Dayquil. Good. Lunch. <laughs> that was that was an awful uh, sequitur. You did it, buddy. Or non sequitur, as the case may be. Um, so, what are we doing next week? Not a clue. But season three is almost at an end. So, as we wrap up this episode, we'll remind everybody to keep it real. Until next time. Thank you for joining us on the Real Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. I'm Reverend Joel Talbert, and on behalf of Rabbi Eric Linder and all the Real Religion fans out there, we thank you for being with us today and invite you to send us any feedback or suggestions or topic ideas to Podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep it real.